0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: podcast. The HSR has announced a partnership with McMaster's Institute for Transportation and Logistics to figure out what area transit needs uh, Hamilton has and how they can facilitate this and how they can move forward with a plan for the future for public transit here in this city. It's going to take a few years for them to actually do this. Uh, I know that uh, on the one hand this looks like a fabulous idea, but there are some concerns that are being raised. I want to talk to Ryan McGreal about that. Of course, Ryan has written extensively about public transit in Hamilton. He is the editor of Raise the Hammer, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. How are you doing this morning, Ryan?
2: I'm really good, Bill. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Listen, as I said in my preamble, on the one hand, uh, it's great that they want to get public input, and that's always a key part of any policy-making decision. But I, I'm, I'm starting to worry now that we're studying this thing to death, and we're not doing a whole lot
2: to try to improve things. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, I guess, <laughs> probably the best way to start. Um, no, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling glass half full today. Okay. So I'm going to say that I, one of the concerns, uh, one of the strange things about Hamilton is that we've had a university right here for nearly a century now, and yet in the past there's been a real reluctance on the part of our municipal governments to kind of tap into the... Uh, this amazing, extraordinary research resource that's available here in our community. There's almost like this kind of division between the two solitudes. And uh, and to see the HSR senior management reaching out to the university, you know, to the Master Institute of Transportation and Logistics, which is a very well-regarded transportation research outfit. They've done some research for the city in the past. Uh, they did a complete streets study a few years ago, mm-hmm. and they've also uh, done a few papers uh, looking at Light rail transit and uh, opportunities for uh, intensification and transit oriented development. So, there's already sort of the beginnings of a partnership with McMaster on looking at how to do transportation better. And transit is, ob- is the, the obvious next piece to that. So, the fact that they're doing this partnership now and working with uh, an engineer and a transportation logistics expert, I think this is a good thing. I think this can only lead to the hsr having better information that they can use to start deploying the resources more effectively
1: i don't disagree I, i'm just concerned about the time frame and and i'm looking for implementation and i guess the other thing that jumped out at me when i heard about this uh, the other day don't we already have a plan i mean I, I still have a copy of the rapid ready report sitting in my office uh i hope there's a few of them still kicking around city hall but that looked like a pretty decent roadmap, and uh, it seems to have been forgotten by just about everybody
2: it's true. It's true, uh, and I mean that's you know if you go back and look at sort of the dust pile of transportation plans. Um, Carl Andrus did uh, a review of rapid transit planning in Hamilton going back to 1960, uh, and we have. I mean, uh, I think at one time in the 1970s, uh, the uh, the mayor at the time said, you know, if we were to get 10 cents on the dollar for every transportation plan we've done, we'd actually have enough money to pay for a rapid transit system uh so it, certainly there's there's a long history of researching and not acting, and of course that's always a possibility. but if we don't if we don't at least start you know there's there's a new senior management team in the h s r they've been kind of shaking things up. maybe this is their way of kind of trying to sort of um, reset you know um refresh the page start from a clean slate and see what they can do with the system we have today.
1: Well, to your point, uh, I just referenced the Rapid Ready report. I think we've gone through three managers in this department since that report was published, haven't we? At least?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Don Hole and then Dave Dixon and then now uh, Debbie uh, Valdivaux. So, yeah. yeah uh, so, so yeah, uh, fresh uh,
1: eyes on this, but I mean, do, do, we, do we assume then that Rapid Ready is, is no longer relevant and that they're starting from square one here?
2: I mean, I would hope... Uh, I mean, given that, that, you know, that these are university researchers, I'm assuming they're going to start with the Rapid Ready report and they're going to look at the 10-year transit strategy, which, to be perfectly honest, always had a bit of a back of the napkin kind of a feel to it. Um, it, I mean, uh, it started um, when uh, former Councillor McHaddy asked staff to look at opportunities to um, increase service levels in response to Rapid Ready uh, in areas that were underserved. And then that turned into a $300 million 10-year plan. Um, and that seemed to happen somewhere in the management team because uh, they were never really directed to do that. And at the time, it was actually presented uh, in, in many ways as an attempt to give the province an out from funding uh, the LRT. And the province came back and said, local transit is your responsibility, rapid transit is our responsibility for funding LRT, and you're going to have to figure out how to pay for this with your federal gas tax and your provincial gas tax and your uh, levy money and your fare revenue.
1: So that, that, that's one of the things that always bothered me about the debate about LRT was was the anti LRT faction actually used Rapid Ready as a as a as a club and said as a tool you know for the for their argument and said well even the Rapid Ready report says that we should do all this stuff before we even think about an LRT line but I mean times change politics changes and when the province came knocking on the door and said I've got the money do you want it we would have been foolish to say no.
2: Well sure and what the Rapid Ready says is we should be doing these things anyway yes but if we want lrt to be successful we also need to be doing these things and uh, and in fact there was we had 10 years to do it uh it's been you know but we're into this the now the, the fourth year of the 10-year transit strategy although the third year they basically didn't implement it at all so they so i mean i i think uh, i would say that rapid ready was the foundation for the 10-year transit strategy and the 10-year tra- transit strategy is sort of being implemented so I, I wouldn't say that it was been ignored completely. Um, I hope that that becomes the framework around which the uh, MITL and master engineering researchers look at, okay, how can we implement this more effectively? What are we missing from this plan? What are some small, uh, easy, quick things that we can do to immediately improve customer service? Uh, I mean, it's you know, transit is there's there's some big issues, and there's a lot of little issues, and you sort of have to get all of them right in order to provide a really high quality service.
1: But here we go again with another study. And, like I say, there's no such thing as too much information, I suppose. but but I guess I'm asking, in in light of what's happened over the last number of years, do they even have a vision? I know I know the ultimate goal is, yeah, they want to increase ridership and have a more efficient system. We get that. That's the goal of just about every system I would think. But, but, you know, what's, what's the vision? What's the You know, there's a visioning statement that's supposed to happen there. I mean, you know, there are a couple of elementary things that I think they need to address here. I mean, you know, it has to be affordable and it has to be convenient or people aren't going to ride it. And we're certainly not there yet. I mean, you know, I, I guess I'm filling out the survey for them because the, those are the two things that I keep looking for, and I don't really see a whole lot of movement from the city to try to achieve either one of those. No,
2: in fact, the city tends to be moving in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, the first two years of the transit strategy, um, one of the biggest criticisms of it was that the entire uh, additional source of revenue was coming from a very steep fare increase each year. Now, what, what, the, the idea, that as this was presented to us, was we'll increase fares, the extra money will be used to uh, backfill um, areas of service that are deficient, and then in the third year we'll start putting new money in. Of course, what actually happened and what critics of the plan uh, at the time warned was going to happen is that when you increase fares, you reduce ridership you know if you make it more expensive to use transit more people will choose a different way of getting where they're going and so the city actually lost revenue and uh, and you know and council ended up having to come back at the end of the year and backfill some of that lost revenue so not only did they not fund it up front but they ended up spending the money anyway after the fact and with a lower ridership basis so that's that's bad planning.
1: Which is typical of what's gone on here, and 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 you know I'm not questioning their 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 you know their goal here. I think they want a better transit system, uh, but the problem is is they don't seem to know the, the the first steps to take to try to get there. And 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 as you say, when we see decreases in ridership, and that's becoming a trend now, uh, it's frustrating. How do you turn that around?
2: And that's not a that's not a countrywide or continent wide trend, by the way. There are a lot of cities that are seeing their transit ridership grow steadily and significantly. That is a, a made-in-Hamilton failure, and I, I want to be really clear on that. Our ridership is declining because we are mismanaging the HSR, not because there's some magical cultural change that's happening that people don't want to ride transit anymore.
1: Yeah, I, but you know, and again, you, to hear some of the, the the you know stuff that comes out of City Hall right now, they're saying, no, 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 this is a national problem. It's a, it's a North American problem. Uh, I travel to other cities, uh, maybe not as much as some of the counselors do, but you go to places, uh, other American cities, certainly Chicago, Boston, New York, places like that, uh, even uh, even some other Canadian cities, and they do have a better transit system. Because, I mean, invariably, if I'm a visitor to that city, I'm using their public transit system because I don't want to drive there, obviously, and I can't understand why we can't replicate some of the things that others are doing well.
2: Well, take a look at Seattle, for example, uh, Seattle, Washington, medium-sized city, a little bit bigger than Hamilton. They already had a pretty good transit system, better than, than ours. Um, they invested in uh, some, some rapid transit uh, anchor lines, and they realized that their um, their transit system was kind of stagnating. They were seeing some losses in ridership, so they kind of went through an exercise, hopefully, um, not too different from what we're looking at doing right now, but they they landed on some kind of fundamental truths about transit, which is that it has to be fast, it has to be convenient, it has to be accessible, it has to be priced reasonably. And so they significantly increased public investment in transit service so that they could provide access to transit for almost the entire city. They increased service in underserved areas, they increased service in areas where the demand was outstripping the supply, And they've seen their ridership grow significantly year after year since they've done this. So they've proven that when you invest in transit, you get results.
1: But we have this big black cloud that hangs over us, and boy, it, it seems as if I can talk and apply this to just about every topic we're having here, whether it's healthcare, care, education, transit, is is they're getting pressure, and it's it's partly our fault as taxpayers, just to keep those costs down. You wanna, we don't want to pay more taxes. We want better service, but we want to pay less for it. And, then, and until we get our heads around the fact that if you want something to be improved, you're going to have to invest in it, uh, we're not going to get anywhere.
2: Well, and part of that is we need our political leaders... be saying that message loud and clear and repeatedly and instead what's happening is we have far too many politicians in Hamilton who are um, they're they're fomenting exactly the kind of anti public investment populism that is making it harder for us to actually get these investments made and to improve services I mean if your ideology is a government can't do anything right and every dollar the government has to spend is a dollar wasted then you're going to try and do as little uh, public spending as possible. But what that means is that people get worse service, and that worse service then reinforces the idea that government can't do anything right. So the the, uh, the irony of that kind of right-wing populist uh, approach is that it produces the crisis that it justifies to continue cutting service. And we've been, in a lot of ways, been enthralled to that in Hamilton in terms of transit, For a long time, for decades now, transit has been regarded as kind of a second-class mode of transportation, you know, as a way for poor people to get around, but not something that you would choose if you had options. Other cities don't look at transit that way. They see transit as part of the infrastructure of a successful urban environment, that people who have options and who have means will use transit because it's the best way to get around.
1: If it's convenient. If it's affordable, if it's accessible, I uh, so we're right back to that section again, and, uh, and and I don't get it. I know you've written extensively about this, Ryan, and and some of the people that have criticized uh, your stance on some, especially when you start comparing cities like Seattle, is they say, well, it's apples and oranges because they're down in the states, the federal and state governments contribute significantly to transit. Uh, and that sort of thing. and th- and that's true. But the fact is is we we have to deal with that reality. The pub, you know, the provincial government is kicking in, not, not as much as they should, but I mean, they're they're at the table. Uh, the feds probably should be, and that may happen. But we have to deal with the what is now and what the reality is. and I, I think it's a flimsy excuse simply to say, "Well, we don't get enough money from senior levels of government, so we're just not going to be
2: that good. Uh, it
1: I, doesn't have to be that way.
2: We actually do get that much money, though. Canada gets over thirty million dollars a year from the federal government for our gas tax transfer, yep. Other Canadian cities use that money for transit. In Hamilton, we don't use the money for transit. We use it to fill potholes. And so we're actually getting federal gas tax money that's supposed to be for transit, and we're not using it for transit, and then we're complaining that we don't get enough money for transit. Which, so is, which is going to be one of
1: the main arguments in this municipal election. It's, uh, it's not how much money we have. It's where we spend the money that seems to be the problem here.
2: Well, and the other piece to that is in Hamilton, we are the only city in Ontario, possibly the only city in Canada, that charges different tax rates for transit to people depending on where they live in the city. This is uh, called area rating for transit. It's Mm -hmm. uh, a holdover from the pre-amalgamation days when, let's say, Ancaster didn't have its own transit service, so they would pay uh, a fee to Hamilton, and Hamilton would send some buses to Ancaster. We have been one city for almost two decades now, and yet we still maintain this uh, this balkanized system of funding transit. So if you want to improve, improve transit service in Ancaster, Ancaster residents have to pay 100% of the cost of that increase. Well, that's ridiculous, and it's not fair, and it means that places that have lower levels of transit service are stuck at those lower levels because the taxing system isn't harmonized across the city. We need to fix that, and council has been kicking that down the road for the last 16 years now.
1: I got to think that as we head to the polls this October for the municipal election that this is going to be the issue I, I, I mean that broad umbrella of transit I mean LRT falls under that but transit service etc uh, and and I, I you would know, be silly if we fall for this excuse that while well, we're studying that you know we did this McMaster study give us another couple of years and we'll have some answers for you uh, as they can start knocking on doors I would think that this is going to be the number one issue.
2: I would hope that while they're doing, I guess this is part of the thing, is that we have this mentality in Hamilton that we can only do one thing at a time. You know, so if we're we're doing this study, then everything else just goes on hold while we're doing that study. And I think what we should be doing is we should be looking at making incremental improvements on an ongoing basis, you know, continuously, uh, whether it's uh, reducing the number of missed buses every day because uh, we have a shortage of drivers, whether it's, it's figuring out which areas have too many pass where you have buses there, but it's already full, so you can't get on. We already have real-time data for these things, and we can start solving those right now. We don't need a study to fix the deficiencies, but I think a study will help in order to get us to advance to the next level of actually providing a higher quality service.
1: Ryan McGreal, uh, check it out, of course, and raise the hammer. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks so much for this today. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. It's uh, uh, your turn to have your thoughts on this, and of course you'll get to do that on Election Day in October for the municipal election, but in the meantime, talk to your councillor about this, and if you're in one of those outlying areas and the service is lousy, demand something, right? Lots of talk going on, not a whole lot of action.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, A couple of stories about steel, and and obviously this is a big issue in the city because of the history and Stelco and, and, and of course, Arsenal of Middle Defasco, But there are other steel makers that have been making a living and making a go of it and uh, during some pretty tough times. But you would have thought that with the uh, the federal government's announcement uh, when the prime minister was in town a couple of uh, days ago uh, that they are committed to uh, to protecting the steel industry. That, that would have been a positive sign, especially for uh, Hamilton Specialty Bar, which I know has had some financial problems. Well, yesterday was the deadline to try to find a buyer for Hamilton Specialty Bar and, uh, well, it looks pretty grim at this stage. Marvin Wright has been following the story. Uh, He's, of course, a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here. Is it it over here, Marvin, as far as Specialty Bar is concerned?
0: Well, I never like to say it's absolutely, the door is closed, but I would say it's at least 90 percent closed at this point. Earlier this month, uh, in early March, the court said one more stay of execution, we're going to give another group one more chance to put a deal together. And that uh, deadline expired yesterday. They are still talking. They were still intending to try to get a deal together, but they just couldn't get their financing in place. So as of today, uh, the Hamilton Specialty Bar is in possession, in possession of a company whose mission it is to break it up into little pieces and sell it one at a time. We call that a liquidation company.
2: Mm-hmm. Now
0: they don't, they don't immediately start selling today. There's still a little window of two, three, four, five days presumably these potential buyers could still come forward and say, rather than selling it piece by piece, I'll buy the whole thing from you. But clearly time is not on their side.
1: What's wrong? Why is this not attractive? I mean, I understand that the steel industry has its challenges, uh, and that's globally, not just here in Hamilton. But at the same time, uh, you know, you'd like to think that somebody's going to have some, not unlike what happened with U.S. Steel slash Stelco.
0: Yeah, you'd like to think there was some entrepreneur out there who felt they could, uh, could weave some magic on this and, and uh, find a way to get the company not only operating but selling its product again. Uh, you asked what's the problem with it. Well, uh, uh, for one thing, it's size. Uh this company Hamilton Specialty Bark can at full capacity produce about 400,000 tons of steel. That's nothing to be sneezed at, but if you take a look at Stelco, we're talking in terms of 6 million tons of steel. This is less than 10% the capacity of a Stelco, and so that gets you to the question of what's the right economic size to be operating. The other thing is that historically, and I'm now talking 100 years ago when this company was first founded, what they produced was bar bar that was turned into railroad uh, ties or ra- railroad uh, lines that uh, trains ran on. Uh, it still produces bar, and it tries to produce this bar for the automotive industry, but their needs have changed as well. And then last but not least it's the way they make it. Both uh, Stelco at its Naticoke facility and ArcelorMittal Metal DeFasco here in Hamilton start with the raw ingredients of steel, iron ore, coke, uh, limestone, and then melt them in a big blast furnace. Uh, Hamilton Specialty Bar uses a different process. It's called an electric arc furnace. And you put scrap in there, and then using a, a, an arc of electricity, you melt the scrap to create uh, a, a sort of a new type of some steel or a new fresh material that you then cast into these bars. And that market is also soft at the moment. So when you put it all together, there's just not anyone at the, who, who seems anyway willing to take the chance with this company.
1: You, you mentioned the market being soft. Is it ever going to return? I mean, is there ever going to be a need or a, a, a desire for the kind of product that these guys make?
0: Yeah, I never like to talk about uh, ever or never because you know things change. Right now, if you take the automotive industry, they have been making extensive use of other materials, whether that be aluminum or plastics or polymers to try to create lighter weight cars lighter weight cars consume less fuel and get better gas mileage or whatever the fuel you're using a better use of the electricity whatever that sort of thing so at the moment they don't seem to be returning back to steal the way they did but all you need is someone to come out with some new direction, some new product and all of a sudden unfashionable product becomes fashionable again i, I just don't think it's around the corner and that's why an entrepreneur who needs to start making money immediately. In other words, if you and I bought this company on April 1st, we can't wait till April 1st, 2020 to start making money. We've got to start making money immediately, and there just doesn't seem to be the the demand for the product that Hamilton Specialty Bar creates. Let me ask you,
1: I don't want to create the impression here that uh, that nobody was interested, because we were told that there was somebody who was kicking the tires here, which is why they got an extension uh, mm-hmm. to, to yesterday in the first place. But apparently the judges overseeing this uh, said the bidder uh, failed to present a going concern. What's the judge looking for here in an offer?
0: Well, you have two choices here. So you have a company that can't pay its creditors. One option is to sell it as a going concern, meaning that somebody's going to come in and continue operations, keep the people employed, keep giving them paychecks, uh, keep making the contributions, and, and then that money that you get from bu- buying the company as a going concern can go to pay down the creditors. If you can't find someone who wants to continue to run the company as a going concern, then the only way the creditors can get their money back is if you liquidate it piece by piece. And the problem there is you tend to get more money if I can sell it as a going concern than I get if I sell it piece by piece. That's because of a simple concept called goodwill. An operating company has clients, has uh, knowledge, has intellectual property that it can keep using, and those are things you can't get any value for in a liquidation, so you prefer to do an ongoing concern. But if no one's prepared to come forward, you just can't keep stringing this along. In other words, those nice creditors keep saying to the judge, where's my money? You know, We started this process back in, in well, actually, December, late December. Where's my money? I've been waiting three months to be paid. I'm owed money, quite legitimately so, and I expect some money to come back. If you're not finding someone who wants to buy this, as a going concern, then even though it's not preferable, liquidate the company so I can get some money back. It may only be fifty cents on the dollar, but it's better than what I've got at the moment, which is nothing. And that's that's the judge's problem here. They've got to balance the needs for the creditors and then the needs, if you will, for society that'd love to see it as an ongoing concern. If no one steps forward, you just can't wait forever.
1: We know that tune, don't we? Isn't this the whole scenario that was developed around the, the U.S. Steel, uh, you know, and the, and the, the uh, stuff that was going on? I guess for years, really.
0: Right. So yeah, this is not the first time we've heard the song. We heard the song back in the in the 2000s, early 2000s, with the original Stelco that led to U.S. Steel being the White Knight. Now we've heard it more recently with the. Bedrock acquisition of Stelco. Now we're hearing it here, and, and we'll hear it again. You know, companies occasionally uh, take uh, take uh, uh, Toys R Us. Uh, they took on a lot of debt, uh, basically drained the cash out. I, I don't want to characterize these people as evil, but I'm not sure their motivation was pure here. The people who bought Toys R Us uh, took equity out of the company, basically giving them big dividends, and instead took on debt. Now they can't pay the debt off. And so, again, the company said, let's let's try to seek protection from, from the creditors. The creditors are saying, well, where's my money? I, I loaned you the money expecting to be paid back. Where, where, where's the money? And if you can't pay it back, then let's go through that process. So that's what you're seeing with Toys R Us. We'll see this story over and over again. Judicious use of debt is great, but if you take on too much debt, this is the risk you run.
1: I don't know if they were looking for a standalone owner or somebody uh, come along and, and you know buy this playing as as a complement to an existing business, but but where are the players? I mean, we heard a whole bunch of names being kicked around when the U.S. Steel situation was happening, Al being one of them, and and some others that that had a, an interest in this. Uh, where, d- I, I, would this place be partly attractive to somebody as a, as an add on to to a, an existing operation?
0: Yeah, well, so let's play that game. Maybe even the
1: two that are in town here.
0: Right. Let's play the game in two ways. So, you know, uh, Mr. Kestenbaum, the person who's behind Bedrock Industries and was the white knight in the Stelco deal, we, we learned last week, for some reason, Mr. Kestenbaum and whatever money he has was interested in buying an NFL football team called the Carolina Panthers for $2.5 billion. He could have picked this up for much less money. And and I think there is a possibility for a major steelmaking company to have, we call this a mini-mill operation, uh, as a complement to it. But that's only if you think you've got the markets. And at this point, I I think Mr. Kestenbaum and Bedrock is busy enough trying to find markets for their existing products. And, And that's a bit of an uphill fight, because once you lose those customers, it's hard to win them back. But nonetheless, they're trying to do that. I I think they just didn't feel they wanted to take another fight on their hands. Same thing with ArcelorMittal DeFasco. They're saying we're busy enough with the products we've got and the processes we have. Uh, We're expanding some of our production internally, and we're just we're just not looking for this capacity at this time. So that's the other thing. You know, Bill, you might have a great deal on an automobile, a classic Mustang, but if I'm not in the market for it, if no one's in the market for it right now then you're not going to get much value for it. Two years later, suddenly Mustangs are cool. Everybody's got to have one. Your Mustang goes up in value. That's kind of what you've got here. There's a few people who kicked the tires. I think the most recent group actually was not a steelmaking concern, but really more of an investment concern. They were trying to put together a deal that they could then farm out to other steelmaking companies, basically flip it uh, like a house flipper, if you will, Mm -hmm. buy it and then flip it to somebody else. But they just couldn't get their financing together, and for the moment, anyway this is this is the unattractive kid on the block. Nobody seems to want to buy it.
1: Well, I guess one of the other options then is is changing the product line if the, If what they're making right now uh, doesn't have much of a market, can they reinvent themselves
0: you You could, but that also takes time and cash. In other words, if I buy the capacity, buy the empty plant, and say, "Now I want to take you off in a new direction." I don't really need your intellectual property, meaning your formulas, to make the various products you're currently making. I'm going to have to come up with the new formulas for the new products. Uh, Your salespeople, well, I know you have ties in that industry. Now I need you to make ties in that industry. All of that takes time. Excuse me, when you have a company in a bit of financial distress, time is one of the things you don't have. So how much people were willing to, we call it bridge finance, in other words, buy the company as of April 1st, but maybe not start turning a profit for six months or a year. That requires you have extra cash in your pockets. Uh, there just didn't seem to be anyone stepping forward. Now, I, I'm i still hopeful, Bill. I want Again, I want to sound that same positive note you do. There was somebody talking, you know, if they can get their tea leaves together, but now the clock is really, really ticking. We're down to the last truly five minutes of this uh, this story. And if they can't do it in a week or so, then I'm afraid we're going to see a big yard sale down there.
1: But it, this is, you know, the old idea about you know an open market here, and simply saying, "Well, nobody else wants it. I can come in and get this thing for a song." Uh, I don't necessarily know if that's the case. So from the, what the judge is saying, who's overseeing this, Marvin, there there are some standards that have to be met. I mean, even right. even with the U.S. steel situation, which is now Stelco, of course. Uh, I mean, Algoma was, was trying to be a player in that, and basically the court told them, go away. You don't, you guys don't qualify. I, I'm wondering if that's going on here.
0: Right. So uh, let's try it another way for you here. The the court can go down two roads. Each of them has a dollar sign at the end of it. It's pretty easy to figure out what the liquidation value of a company is. What If I break it up into individual pieces, in other words, I sell off whatever trucks they have and whatever vehicles they have and what whatever inventory, I can calculate a value for that that's probably less than the amount owed but look i can still do that calculation now i'd love to sell it as an ongoing concern but i'm not going to sell it at just any price if you come in there with a dollar and i go well a dollar for those creditors isn't as good as what i can get with the liquidation then i prefer liquidation for the court to decide on your uh, to to rule in your favor the amount of money that's going to be generated from the sale has to be better than what you would get from the liquidation. And that's again, remember, the judge here is ruling, and I know many people get upset about this, but this whole uh, creditor protection business, this is the lens that they use. What is in the best outcome for the creditors? Not the best for the retirees, not the best for the city not the best for the employees. So if I can get more money out of a liquidation, I'm going to go with the liquidation route. I'd prefer to sell it as an ongoing entity, but only if I can get more money that way.
1: This is going to fall into the same category. You mentioned Toys R Us, and we can go through Sears and a number of other companies that uh, have seen better days and have had to lock their doors here. Uh, But once again, we're getting into the same kerfuffle we had about the U.S. Steel and CCAA rules, that the creditors are way up here, the the workers and pensioners, uh, too bad, so sad. You guys are out of luck.
0: Yes, and and I I know that um, uh, the NDP, for instance, have have argued that they're going to want to rewrite that legislation. I just don't know how you rewrite it, because the triggering event here is a company that has borrowed money and can't pay it back. And at that point, it is the creditors who are owed, legitimately so, legitimately so, owed the money that they're supposed to pay. So how do you balance this? Uh, I know the workers have, if you will, a future right by continuing their employment and the continuing their uh, pension obligations what have you and i think they do need to be on the list but first and foremost the triggering event is the company that's borrowed money and can't pay it back you can't stop companies from borrowing and you can't stop companies from putting themselves in these circumstances and if the creditors don't get some amount of protection then these companies who might need some cash may not get the loans they need to keep operating so it is how do you do this balancing act? I'm not sure it's an easy snap of the fingers. It's obviously, if I'm a worker or a retiree, it's easy to say put me first, put me first. But then, how does the company get the cash it needs to operate? And some of these companies do need loan financing. And I should also note, Bill, I said the judicious use of debt. All debt is not bad. Used properly, debt can be a very important tool. But you've got to use it properly. And this is true also personally. The story that we haven't talked about yet, but I think we may by the end of this year, is I suspect there are some people out there who, much like this company, have over-levered themselves, and as interest rates continue to rise over the next year, year and a half, a few of them may find themselves in the same kind of a problem now. They just can't pay back what they owe, and then what do you do? Uh, it's again a very tricky situation.
1: Well, and if uh, you know past occurrences are any indication, I mean, as soon as somebody looks in and starts asking for creditor protection, I mean, they're going down a pretty slippery slope, uh, as these guys did. And uh, I agree with your point. By the way, I don't know if the CCWA legislation is actually the place where you're going to try to to help look after uh, you know the retirees and the pensioners. Maybe a separate piece of legislation to cover that off. Uh, Because clearly there's there's a problem here, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. As you say, I think we're going to see more examples of this rather than fewer.
0: Well, the reason why this comes up at all, Bill, is the pensions that are owed money, that we have pensions, we still have some pensions that are underwater, meaning there's not as much money in those pension funds as is needed to keep them whole over the life of the pension plan. And at that point, that's where I think we need to have them say, wait a minute, you have an obligation here that you can't just walk away from. Uh, in some years, when the, when pension funds are perfectly full, and there have been those times, granted, not in the last few years, but take the early 2000s, I can remember some creditor protections where no one in the pension plan was owed anything, then probably the current system works just fine. But until these pensions get righted around, maybe we need to put that bookmark in there. Um, uh, and again, unfortunately, uh, sometimes companies get into this financial trouble with their heads up other times the the owners seem to drive them into it in the case of both sears and toys r us i think you had owners that almost knew exactly what they were doing by taking on more debt than the company could handle and then creating these one-time dividends to line their pocket they were really telling us they didn't care about the future of the companies there are other situations where i see companies and management doing absolutely the right thing doing everything in their power to keep it going and then the market may have turned, or there may have been an external force that caused the problem. Again, maybe we need to make a distinction of what caused the debt in the first place in terms of how do we then resolve the issue.
1: Yeah, but can you actually tell somebody, a prospective buyer, that qualifies to say, all right, you can't take on new debt for the first two years, five years, something like that?
0: Yeah, and again, that would be hard to do because we believe in a free market system. So all of these are hard to do, um, and Easily, again, in hindsight, somebody like me can come back and say, well, if they hadn't taken the, the billion dollars in debt back in 2010, we wouldn't be where we are today. But back in 2010, they would have argued, I need that billion dollars because I need to go after this new market or these, these new customers or whatever it happens to be. Hindsight is always 2020.
1: Well, yeah, and that's the situation, you know. In other words, whether they're going to get the capital to reinvest into the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's always going to be an excuse in a business case, I guess. For it, sadly, we uh, hopefully are going to see some some better news for these guys. And uh, as long as there is a glimmer of hope that uh, possibly this thing could get reversed, Marvin, thanks as always. Uh, great uh, having you on the program to give us some insight into this. We'll keep watching. You betcha, Marvin Ryder, of course of the DeGroot School of Business, and and I, I feel badly. I mean, for the retirees and for the well, about 250 employees. Uh, that uh, are going to be looking for work. But, uh, you know, you'd like to think that there's going to be some protection for those people. And we've seen it happen twice now with uh, with Stelco and uh, now with Specialty Bar. And uh, it does beg the question, you know, what are governments going to do about this? And this is only in the steel industry. What about the other workers, the Sears workers, the Toys R Us workers, and the pensioners involved in there? It's, uh, it's a different world these days, and the government has to realize that and, and see what they can do. Of course, at the same time, you've got people running for office right now in a provincial government saying, well, you, there should be less government. That means they don't look after people like this. So we've got some decisions to make as voters in this province.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, well, listen,
1: the red hasn't even been dropped for the the provincial election. Now, the, you know, The official election campaign won't be until the first week of May. But uh, the campaigning and the electioneering has already started. We already know that, obviously, Doug Ford was selected as a PC leader. Uh, the uh, provincial government will uh, do their budget uh, tomorrow at Queen's Park, and it's really not a budget. It's really just going to be their campaign uh, platform uh, that they're going to roll out. And there is an organization that has uh, sprung up that's caught a lot of people's interest. It's a grassroots online campaign called Not Doug. And it's formed a website attacking the uh, progressive conservative leader. Uh, The website they've created is, uh, well, rather pointed in their criticism. They say on the webpage, there are many reasons why Doug Ford is a bad choice for Premier. And then they go on to list a litany of Ford's controversial statements about autistic children, abortion, women, racism, drugs, among other topics. And on and on it goes. It looks pretty slick. Uh, which begs a question. Is there a political party behind it? Well, the people that are uh, involved with this organization called Not Doug uh, say absolutely not. They are not affiliated with any other political party. They are just, quote unquote, concerned citizens. Do things like this actually have an impact on elections? Let's ask Richard Brendan, retired journalist, of course, covered uh, Queen's Park for many, many years for the Toronto Star. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Richard?
3: Hello, how's it going?
1: Uh, and, well, I mean, this is why they call it the silly season, I guess, isn't it?
3: Well, I was reading the story, and I looked up the uh, website for this, uh, not Doug. And all the things they say, you know, certainly uh, could be true, and some of them are certainly true. But the point is, and, you know, some might, you know, applaud their efforts, but I don't think it's going to mean deadly, quite frankly,
1: well, first of all, you've got to access this. If you don't look at the webpage, you're never going to know. I know they put some posters up, I guess, on some, some polls, or telephone polls around there said, uh, beware of Doug, I guess to take off on the old beware of dog signs that you can buy. But uh, it, it, I'm, I'm getting the sense, and, and obviously uh, you and I have talked about how the importance of campaigns can can have an impact on this, but I, I'm getting all the sense that a lot of people already have made up their minds about what they want to do here, and I'm not so sure if, if this sort of a campaign is going to have any impact at all.
3: Well, it'll have some impact. It'll it'll make some people uh, give pause for thought. But the more and more I see and listen to uh, people out there, the more I think the die is cast here. And it's just a matter of how bad bad the bloodletting is going to be, uh, quite frankly. I I think, uh, you know, quite frankly, I think uh, uh, Doug uh, Ford is is a blowhard. Uh, But I don't know if it'll matter. I think... You know he he's a buffoon. Uh, he's not he's not unlike what you know the President of the United States. His qualities are very similar. But people certainly have told me at least that it is time to change the channel.
1: I mean, some of the stuff on here, and you've you've had a glance at the web page. Uh, It says right on here, it says this is not about the progressive conservatives, the liberals, NDP, or Green Party. It's about preventing incompetent, unqualified individuals from taking power just because they're the loudest ones in the room. A Doug Ford government would be a disaster for Ontario, the site goes on to say. Uh, and it, they list some of the stuff. I, I mentioned a couple of them, Richard. And, uh, the story about the autism uh, house, of course, in his ward when uh, when he was still a city councillor. Uh, he did his best, obviously, to try to get rid of that. He didn't want those guys running around the neighborhood, I think was the phrase. I'm paraphrasing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know about the alleged drug use, the, the, seri- the stuff that the Globe and Mail ran years ago. I think voters know most of this stuff already, don't they? And they choose to either think it's
3: important or not to. Well, I raised it. It's, I funny mean, you should ask the question, because I raised it with uh, some people just uh, last week, and I said, well, you've heard, heard, certainly heard the allegations with Doug Ford selling dope when he was a kid. And this person, who I would say is a small-c conservative, said, I don't care about that.
1: Yeah. And I think I think that's the mindset, and and I know that that some of us may look at that at mindset of that attitude and say, how could they possibly do that? But uh, as you just alluded to, they just elected a guy as president of the United States who had a long, long list of things, you know, including grab them by the, you know, what, etc. Yeah. And and people just said, we don't care, we don't care, doesn't bother us at all. We want him, and they got him. Uh, and I get the sense the same thing could actually be happening here.
3: Oh, okay. I think so. I, I know what I'd be doing if I was at Queen's Park. I would just let him talk. You know, there's no sense of, you know, you know berating him, uh, you know, uh, being a kind of an attack dog on him. I would just let him talk. My dad used to say, give a man enough and he'll hang himself. And I think that would be, you know, the way I would approach this. Because... He, even, The more you listen to him, the more you think, there's no there there. You know, this, this guy is all hat and no cattle. There's just, what he's saying is just bumper sticker politics. It really doesn't get into the essence of what it takes to run a government.
1: Well, we saw that the other day when the Sunshine List came out, and uh, uh, he, he made a rare appearance at Queen's Park. And uh, he did talk to the media, but, I mean, it was... Quite frankly, nonsensical. I mean, he used he used the clichés. You know, these are all Kathleen Wynn's friends getting rich off the taxpayer. And, and you, had, you know, he had, clearly hadn't even looked at the list. I mean, yes, there are some bureaucrats on that list, but there are people like, uh, uh, you know, doctors, uh, obviously, around that list. But, I mean, there's there's a number of other things. There are police officers on that list. There are first responders on that list. I mean, but he's just throwing that out there and throwing the cliché out there. And then, of course, he was asked by one of the reporters in the, in the scrum, well, would you do anything about it? Well, no. Would you fire anybody? Well, no. Would you drop their salaries? Well, no. Then, then why are you even talking about it?
3: It was nonsensical. When I read his comments, I thought, this is somebody that absolutely does not understand how government works, who works for government, and, and the, what it does for people. He doesn't get it.
1: But he's there. And he's he's, I, I and I, I'm wondering really, Richard, as you see the stories that come out on almost on a weekly basis now, about how how low the liberals are, and and maybe the NDP might be ahead of them. We don't know yet, but how much of a lead the Conservatives are, the PCs are alleged to have here. But those numbers were pretty good anyway. I mean, before Ford became the leader, and I think a lot of people that were speculating when the leadership was finally decided, and Ford ended up as the winner. That there'd be a big dip in PC uh, fortunes as a result of that, like oh no, we don't want that guy. But I don't see it happening.
3: No, I well, the, I mean, again, the campaign's going to tell the tale. We'll we'll see if the, the liberals can can hold him even to a, you know a minority government. Uh, w- we'll see. Uh, but right now, it just seems like it's it's a, it's a it's 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 he's a steamroller, and it's he's just rolling across the province with his you know, his uh, patented bumper sticker politics where it's a mile wide and an inch deep. And if you you look into what he's saying, it doesn't make a lick of sense.
1: But are we at the stage politically in this country right now where uh, it's uh, anybody but. Uh, and I, I that's a terrible way to vote. But, I mean, I understand how frustrated everybody is with the Wynn government. And we see that with the, the polling. And, the, and, and, boy, just anecdotally, talk to anybody. I mean, that, that's just, you want to play word association, say Kathleen Wynn, and see the kind of response you're going to get from just about everybody. I, I know liberals, long-time liberals that say, look, it's time for her to go. Uh, but, you know, there is a mood for change. But is it change just for the sake of change? Well, or are they going to look for some that's substance?
3: the trouble, isn't it? I mean, it, you know, it, you wake up uh, on, you know, uh, you know, June eighth, if you haven't followed the, the results, and you, you may have a bad case of buyer's remorse because you he may get elected, and then you start, you know, in the in the cold light of day, you look at him and go, did we really do this? You know, have we more or less? You know, what? I'll just back up a second. It's funny the people that who I know who condemn Trump and his behavior and his, you know, kind of maniacal way of doing things, here in Ontario are the same ones that are praising Ford. And I go, don't you see the connection? Don't you see that, you know, their approach is very similar
1: yeah, yeah, but they rationalize. I mean, I've had those discussions with some people too that that will do that very same thing. They're Ford supporters, and and they they vilify Trump for what's going on, and uh, and they simply say, well, he's not Donald Trump, uh, and and they'll pick one of those things and say, see, he doesn't do that sort of thing. Like, uh, well, we don't know that, okay. But the reality here is that they're they're trying to rationalize. But but this is this is this is election by default, really, and we're seeing the same thing federally to a certain extent. If you want to believe some of the polling that's gone on in the last couple of weeks where there's a great deal of discontent with Justin Trudeau, not with his policies so much, but with his actions. And and all of a sudden, Andrew Scheer is rising right up here. He's saying nothing. I mean, the only thing we know about Andrew Scheer is that he likes to walk in the park and talk to people on the bench, according to all those commercials. But all of a sudden, they, they've shot right up there simply because of the, the the discontent that we're feeling for the prime minister. And the same thing seems to be happening here provincially.
3: Uh, it's in, in both cases, you know, well, certainly federally, it's you know, uh, these kind of midterm polls to me just mean, you know, mean nothing. Uh, you know, it, it it really is a popularity contest, these kind of midterm polls. You know, did we like the way he dressed in India? No. Has he, you know, has, we don't like the way he's been behaving? You No. Know. You know, I mean, that's, the thing is, but right now we're getting, provincially, we're getting down to the, the short strokes here. And we've got an election coming up within weeks. And... I, I really believe that you know, it's, it's not going to look well for the liberals. Like I say, how bad the bloodletting will be remains to be seen.
1: Well, we'll get an idea tomorrow, I guess, when Sousa, uh, Charles Sousa does the budget, the, the provincial budget, which is really, it's it's a not budget, really. It's it's really going to be their election platform weighed out there, but there are going to be promises galore here. Uh, but I don't know if they've got anything in the bag of tricks that's actually going to catch the voters' fancy. I mean, at this stage, it's it's pretty late in the game.
3: Well, I, I don't know what's going to be in the budget because I think half of it's been announced already. Mm-hmm. You know, just today she taught, you know she announced uh, you know free daycare, or the, her government I should say, announced free daycare for preschoolers,
1: which sounds fabulous for young parents. But have those young parents already made up their mind about what they want to do on election day?
3: That's is anybody listening? Have they made up their minds? Is anybody listening? That that's the real question here. I mean, if I was a young parent, I would go, boy, that's. I like the idea of that.
1: Well, and. yeah, but he's... The, and we already know, Andrea Horvath's already mentioned a few things, and you know, they're, they're starting to let some of their platform out. We pretty much know where the Liberals are going to be on this, because as you mentioned, some of the announcements they've made. But we're still sitting there saying, okay, so what's the conservative platform? It's it's not the people's guarantee, clearly, uh, and, and we don't know what is. I mean, for instance, there's the announcement today about daycare. Well, would a conservative government uh, carry on with that? What would they do? We don't know yet. And I know they say they're busy putting something together right now, but uh, it'd be nice to have something to compare it to so we can make a value judgment here instead of simply saying, well, I don't like that personality. I like that personality better.
3: I don't believe at the end of the election we'll really know what they're up to. I really don't. I mean, you're going to get a bunch of vague answers for, to very specific questions about you know what it might education, you know sex education, uh, health care, you know social services, you know, is he going to come in and and attack you know the uh, folks who are receiving social services? We don't know. And I don't think he'll re- he'll give an answer that will be clear enough for people to understand during the election campaign to really know what he's up to.
1: I mean, we're we're clamoring now for some details, but at the end of the day, I mean, let's look at past history. Uh, when we do have those election platforms, when we do have the Red Book that Jean Kretchen had, or we had the Common Sense Revolution, uh, it made for interesting reading during the campaign, but it was pretty good to hold on to it and, and look afterwards and realize, okay, they're not doing that, or oh, they didn't do that, or oh, they're not doing it. they reversed their idea on this. On and on it goes. So, I mean, are they really even worth the paper they're written on?
3: I kind of think you've answered your your. your your own question there and that they don't want something that people can hold up and say, you did this, you didn't do that. You did this. They don't want that because then they don't have to, they don't have to adhere to something that they might've, you know, put in writing. This is going to be just, I'm not her vote for me. Cause I'm not her. And, and it's going to be, that's going to be the same message throughout the campaign.
1: Yeah, well, and that may well be the problem. But, you know, as simplistic as that strategy sounds, so far it seems to be working.
3: Well, it, from, what, from my, you know, uh, certainly vantage point, and the people I chat with, it it certainly be, seems to be catching on, you know, that Ford, despite his maybe shortcomings, is, is you know, he's, he's hit the sweet spot here, and, and people are saying, yeah, let's just give him a try.
1: Well, that seems to be the consensus so far. We'll see how it plays out over the next little while. Uh, always a pleasure, Richard. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, Bill. Talk to you later. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, covered uh, Queen's Park for many, many years. And, and there's the quandary that Ontario voters are feeling right now. They, they clearly want change. They clearly don't want to see this government be reelected. But where do you go for the alternative? And I don't know that a whole lot of people have made up their mind yet. So maybe a campaign would be worthwhile. Maybe some campaign promises and some commitments would be worthwhile. We'll see.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.